0: This morning, I'm doing something a bit different for us. Uh, in homiletical circles, there's something that was developed in the 20th century. It's called the New Homiletic, a uh, narrative preaching. It's using the story form in order to communicate uh, the Word of God. Typically, people find it easier to listen to a story than to listen to a lecture or three points in a poem, So, uh, where the preacher tries to state some truth and convince you to act a certain way as a result of it. So, Sometimes you lose your audience, so the way Jesus taught was by the telling of stories. So I've written not a a sermon so much as a story that I invite you to listen to. And Crosby's learned to say amen, that's good. (laughs) It was an ordinary Monday morning for early July in South Carolina, low country. Hot, humid, exhausting. The Reverend Sam Dietzel sat inconspicuously and incognito at gate A3 in the Charleston International Airport. Charleston International Airport, he thought. What a strange name for an airport with only domestic flights. (laughs) Ever since 9-11, Sam had dutifully arrived at least two hours before his infrequent departures. For other passengers, such promptness would have been a burden, but for Sam, it was a pleasure because it afforded him ample time to play his two secret mind games. Airports in the past had proven to be ideal venues for these private diversions. Sam's first game concerned only himself. Here at the airport, in his own imagination at least, he could change his identity and take on an air of mystery and anonymity. None of his fellow passengers need ever know that the papers he carried in his briefcase were not some secret defense matter, not the final draft of his latest novel anxiously anticipated by a major publisher, not a lucrative contract now signed and sealed which he had skillfully negotiated for his privately held company. No, the plain truth and the private truth was that Sam's briefcase actually contained the common ordinary ordination exams of would-be ministers. which he had been asked to review along with six other people who would be meeting in a church in Orlando over the next several days. But here, in the setting of the airport at least, the Reverend Sam Dietzel could pretend to be whomever and whatever he chose and no one would be the wiser. On many days, Dietzel suffered silently from that common malady of chronic low self-esteem When these days arrived, he felt cursed by mediocrity, a curse he usually managed to conceal from his parishioners at the St. Giles Presbyterian Church of Charleston. Not infrequently, Sam felt that he was a living example of the Peter Principle, that he had already advanced beyond his own level of personal competence. Among his close friends, he would say only half-jokingly that had his name not been Dietzel, he would never have been called to the St. Giles Church. Perhaps that was partially true because the chairman of the pastor nominating committee had been a 1959 graduate of LSU and was hopelessly enamored with Coach Paul Dietzel and his Chinese bandits who won the national championship that year. Well, maybe that wasn't the only reason he was called to be the pastor of St. Giles, but certainly it had given him a leg up on other candidates, or so he assumed Then again, there were those other days, like this one, when Sam Dietzel entertained thoughts of being extraordinary and especially of becoming an extraordinary pulpiteer. Without question, Sam loved to preach, though he feared he lacked the requisite imagination, the native creativity, and the theological insight to move from that vast company of the average and the ordinary to the more select company of the gifted. An old professor in seminary had told him that his sermons were too academic, too detached, And went straight from his head to his lips without ever passing through his heart or by his own experiences in life. While that may have been true, Sam Dietzel knew nonetheless that God had called him to preach. Whether it was born of personal pride or professional ambition or a genuine sense of call and commitment, he didn't know. But Sam Dietzel knew that he had a compelling desire to share God's word with clarity and conviction. And he prayed that people would not just hear him gladly but would be actually moved by his words to faith and repentance and obedience. How thrilling, he thought, to be used of God in this kind of way, to be a catalyst for God's changing of people through the spoken word. Sadly, however, much of Sam's flock back at St. Giles seemed disinterested and unmoved by his preaching. Oh, they liked Sam well enough, but they found it easy to ignore him while he preached. For some at Saint Giles, worship was not so much a matter of arising inspired as it was of awaking refreshed. Children colored their bulletins as he preached. Women prepared lists of items to pick up from the store on the way home from church. Men glanced nervously at their watches, hoping that they would be able to make their tea times or catch the Panthers kickoff come fall. How fortuitous, Sam thought to serve at a church in the eastern time zone when the first NFL game didn't actually begin until after services were ordinarily concluded. Sam chuckled at a thought that returned to his mind, a thought that never ceased to amuse him and even to delight him in a strange sort of way, for he considered it to be one of his few original thoughts. Ten years ago, as he stood in his former pulpit in rural Kentucky, it had suddenly dawned on him why watches were called watches. Not clocks, not timepieces, but watches. Anyone who had ever stood before a bored and distracted congregation would have to know why watches were called watches. Suddenly, Sam noticed the three flight attendants, he still called them stewardesses, who were standing near him, joking with the ticket agent at the counter. Seeing their name tags and observing their posture and their speech, he quickly sized them up and assigned them their respective lots in life. This was the second little mind game that Sam loved to play when traveling and when studying strangers. He would create for them his personally assigned identities and lifestyles. That is to say, Sam would assume the role of the sovereign designator of people's respective lots in life. Janet, the blonde, he determined, was a divorcee from the Midwest with two cats and an eight-year-old daughter back home. This was her chosen career, and her former husband had never been able to accept her choice. He had considered Janet too opinionated, too goal-oriented, too crude, and especially too absent to be retained as a spouse, and so she wasn't. Suzette was the petite brunette with dancing brown eyes whose smile, no doubt, had melted many a heart. He decided that she was a former gymnast and a first runner-up in the 2005 Miss Carolina contest. Needless to say, Sam hoped that he would be seated in her section of the plane, as did every other male passenger between 9 and 90. (laughs) Frances, the third attendant, was more of an enigma. She was older, rather plain and ordinarily looking, somewhat nondescript, not unlike the pastor of the St. Giles Church. But the mind game had to continue, so Sam decided with profound arbitrary insight that she was married to a State Farm agent and lived with her two children... (laughs) and a husband in a rather typical ranch house in the suburbs of, well, let's say, Charlotte. She had backed into this career as a flight attendant. Forty years ago, when she had completed junior college, there were few careers as attractive as flying that were open to women with her credentials. But now she seemed rather bored or tired. Sam couldn't tell which. And so he ordained that she had stayed up late the previous evening folding laundry and arguing with her husband about politics and presidents. They were forever switching back and forth between Fox News and MSNBC, depending on who held the remote at the time. (laughs) Soon the plane boarded. Sam was in seat 24C, tourist class. Fortunately, he was seated on the aisle, so with any luck, he would be in a prime spot to keep an eye out for Suzette and allow his private fantasies and his sovereign assignments to continue unabated Providentially, seats 24A and B on the same row as his were occupied by two young lovers off to Disney World on their honeymoon, or at least that's what Sam decreed. They were hopelessly in love and preoccupied in their mutual attraction, which suited Sam just fine. It meant that he was free to read and didn't have to worry about carrying on some inane conversation about being a minister in today's crazy world. With any luck at all, he would at least be able to review the lectionary passage for the coming Sunday on his way down to Orlando. He could at least read the assigned lectionary passages for the next Sunday in ordinary time and see what homiletic seeds might be there that could be germinated. He read first from the Old Testament, a strange selection from Zephaniah, the first chapter. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who dress themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish all who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, says the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. The inhabitants of the mortar wail for all the traitors have perished. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good nor will he do harm. Their wealth shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The the warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring such distress upon people that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his passion, the whole earth shall be consumed for a full, a terrible end will he make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Sam closed his Bible and shook his head. He was underwhelmed. And disappointed. It was just another of those frequent warnings about the coming day of the Lord which seemed to hold a peculiar fascination for those powers that chose the lectionary passages throughout the liturgical year. The prophets were such predictable pessimists and Sam found it very difficult to bring their messages alive for contemporary listeners. After all, Sam served an enlightened and well-educated congregation, one that didn't place much stock in all this talk about the end times. They were were more than willing to leave the eschaton to the evangelical fringe of the Christian church and even questioned its relevance for their own life and times. And to be quite honest, Sam was much like his parishioners. Every time some new madman emerged on the world stage, an Ayatollah Khomeini, a Saddam Hussein, an Osama Osama bin Laden, a Kim Jong-un, biblical literalists would come out of the woodwork and seek to prove how all of this was the fulfillment of some obscure prophecy And a sure sign that the Lord would return soon. Like his parishioners, Sam found it very difficult to take any of this seriously. Just this past week, there had come across his desk a promotion for a new magazine that dealt with the end times and the imminent return of the Lord. What Sam found so amusing about the magazine was that obviously its own publishers didn't take the Lord's imminent return very seriously either. They offered him a discount if he chose a three-year subscription. (laughs) No thanks. He would stick with his Time magazine and Presbyterian outlook. So, the lesson from Zephaniah left the Reverend Sam Dietzel uninspired and disinterested. It was just another of those dreaded texts from the prophets on the coming day of the Lord, a reminder to the complacent people of Judah of God's approaching judgment and consequently their need for repentance and preparation. How could he possibly do justice to such a text? Were he not just an ordinary preacher, were this not just an ordinary Sunday in the middle of a strange period in the liturgical year known as ordinary time, were none of this true, perhaps he could find a way to bring the subject of the coming day of the Lord alive for his people, but he hadn't a clue as to where or how to begin. Ordinary time, he thought. Where in heaven's name had that designation come from? Are the days between Epiphany and Lent and then later between Pentecost and Advent somehow more ordinary in God's scheme of things than other days of the year? He knew, of course, that liturgically speaking, ordinary meant standard or usual, but he also knew that in the minds of his parishioners, it usually meant mundane, commonplace, inferior. Who was to say when some ordinary day like this one might transition into something quite extraordinary? Maybe the day of the Lord itself, the day of God's coming judgment and salvation, would be on a typical Monday in July, somewhere in between Pentecost and Advent, or even somewhere in the skies between Charleston and Orlando. The plane taxied away from the terminal and was taking its assigned position, awaiting liftoff. Suddenly his stewardess appeared. He might have known. In his section was the common, ordinary, lethargic Francis who stood before him as she began her obligatory instructions and her warning, which after 40 years she could recite without thinking and without feeling. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We would like to welcome you aboard Flight 956 to Orlando. Our flying time will be approximately 60 minutes en route. We would appreciate your attention at this time as we inform you of the features provided for your safety. You will find an illustrated briefing card in the seat pocket in front of you to help you follow along. Francis was already on automatic pilot as she dispassionately spoke her words of warning and instruction. So were her passengers. No one listened to her. No one heeded her instructions with two obvious exceptions. Sam noticed that there was a middle-aged Hispanic lady two rows ahead of him who was accompanied by a small boy. She listened attentively to Francis's words. Was this boy a son, a grandson, he wondered to himself? So he continued his little mind game. Sam assigned her the name of Senora Valdez and determined that she was taking her grandson to Disney World for his sixth birthday. The other passenger, also giving Francis her undivided or his undivided attention, was a young sailor in his dress whites. He wanted to appear confident and poised, but in truth, he was clearly nervous, an unseasoned traveler, no doubt, making his way home for his grandmother's funeral, as Sam decreed. Francis continued her lifeless liturgy. Please note the location of our emergency exits on board our DC 910 series aircraft. There are two forward doors on either side, four window exits over mid-cabin, over the wings, and a rear door exit in the tail of the aircraft. Please familiarize yourselves with the exit nearest you and its operation. The cabin is being pressurized for your comfort in the event of cabin depressurization A panel will drop automatically above your seat, revealing an oxygen mask for each passenger. Just reach up and pull the mask toward you and down, placing it over your nose and mouth as demonstrated, and breathe normally until further advised. If you have small children traveling with you, place your mask first and then assist your child. Senora Valdez exchanged a loving smile with the senorito. And to Sam's amazement, the sailor also follow along, followed along on the briefing card as directed. And yet, so far as Sam could tell, only the senora and the sailor paid any attention at all to the words of warning from this ordinary stewardess on this ordinary flight, on this ordinary morning in the midst of ordinary time on the liturgical calendar. Francis' little congregation, thought Sam, was no different than his own, or for that matter, from Zephaniah's. When all was said and done, Zephaniah was just an ordinary prophet delivering an ordinary warning expected of prophets in Judah. Even as he spoke centuries ago, business as usual continued in the fish gate. Surely God would not allow his chosen people despite their sin to be overrun by these pagans, or so the people assumed. Zephaniah's parishioners lived in wealth and comfort. Why should they change their ways or their habits? It was hard for them to take seriously this ordinary prophet, and so in their hearts they said, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. The words of the ordinary stewardess now turned preacher and prophet were drawing to a close. Please observe the no smoking and fasten your seatbelt signs while the captain has them illuminated. Your seat bottom cushion is designed to be used as a flotation device. Just pull up on the cushion, putting both arms through the straps in the back. Delta is pleased to announce a smoke-free environment for its passengers, installed for your protection or lavatory smoke detectors, tampering with or disabling them as a federal offense. Then came the customary conclusion. We are now ready for departure. Please raise your seat back and tray tables to their upright and locked positions. We hope you enjoy your flight with us this morning. Thank you for choosing Delta. Quickly, Sam turned from Zephaniah to the lectionary's other lesson from the epistles. It was 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. With any luck, he thought, he could find a topic for next Sunday other than that of the Lord's coming judgment. There would be other times to focus on the obligatory warning of the Lord's return, but he frankly didn't have the stomach for it right now, and he guessed that neither would his parishioners at St. Giles'. So the Reverend Sam Dietzel read from Thessalonians the designated lesson for the coming Sunday in ordinary time. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you need not to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. Oh, for heaven's sakes, thought Sam. Loud enough to be overheard by the nearby lovers. Paul's words to the Thessalonians offered no escape. In their own way, they were as depressing and as ominous as Zephaniah's. They too would be heard as a threat for his people, as judgment upon the unprepared and the apathetic who carelessly ignored God's word and will. At any rate, once again, Sam regretted his decision to preach from the common lectionary throughout this current three-year cycle. What had he been thinking? It seemed there was no avoiding the coming day of the Lord and the need for preparation. But then, who knew? Perhaps these strange texts would startle some comfortable and complacent soul within St. Giles, into repentance and faith and obedience. Maybe there would be a senora or a sailor in worship next Sunday. Perhaps Sam really should risk speaking of the Lord's return, despite the cool reception it was destined to receive. As the DC-10-910 began its approach and descent into Orlando, suddenly and without warning, business as usual in the fish gate came to an abrupt conclusion. Francis's voice was heard once more, but this time with feeling. The captain has illuminated the light. Conf- the captain has indicated that the light confirming the locking of the landing gear has failed to illuminate. In all probability, there is nothing to fear, but it will be necessary to prepare the cabin for an emergency landing. <coughs> Please return to your seats and fasten your seat belts. Bring your seat backs and tray tables to their upright and locked positions. Momentarily you will be instructed how to brace for impact. The worst fear of all flyers was suddenly being realized. There was no outright panic as such, but the passengers almost to a person were nervous and frantic. The lovers beside him embraced. Businessmen squirmed as they thought of the sudden destruction entering their private worlds of peace and security, just as Thessalonians had warned. A voice was heard from the rear. Where did you say our exit was, ma'am? Others came from first class. Is the cockpit secure? Is there a marshal on board who can help us? It seemed to Sam that only the senora and the sailor managed to keep their composure. The senora smiled and comfortably held the hand of her small companion. Sam joined his fellow passengers in following instructions. As he placed his head between his legs and braced for impact, an ordinary preacher on an ordinary flight realized that truly there was no such thing as ordinary time. And it dawned on him that the messenger's task, first and foremost, was to deliver the message as clearly and as accurately as possible, and that the listeners were responsible for what they heard and how they responded. Preachers, prophets, and flight attendants need not be popular or pretty or creative, they only needed to be truthful and helpful. All the media outlets reported the harrowing but harmless landing of Delta Flight 956 to Orlando. The landing gear had functioned perfectly. Only the light had malfunctioned. Nonetheless, several Delta passengers, including the Reverend Sam Dietzel of the St. Giles Presbyterian Church, returned home with a more sober perspective on time and truth and a more firm resolution no longer to take for granted the day of the Lord's coming which could be soon or late for any person and for which preparation was always in order. Some thought it his finest hour as Sam Dietzel entered the pulpit of St. Giles Church on the next Sunday in Ordinary Time. It may have been an ordinary Sunday service, but it was certainly no ordinary sermon that day, nor any ordinary preacher for that matter. The message was as memorable as it was brief. But few of his listeners could escape its timeliness or its truth. The message seemed to come from Sam Dietzel's heart this time, as well as from his head, and it had about it a hint of haunting familiarity. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We l- would like to welcome you aboard our service today here at St. Giles. Our worship time will be approximately 60 minutes. We would appreciate your attention at this time as we inform you of some of the features provided for your safety and security while you're here. You will find a reliable briefing briefing book in the pew rack in front of you. Follow along for it will help you prepare for any and all eventualities. Familiarize yourself with it. I would remind you that the day of the Lord is at hand, near and hastening fast. Do not rely upon your comfort or your wealth. Do not trust in your status or your health. Do not ignore the Lord's warnings or spurn His guidance. As a thief in the night, He will come, suddenly and unexpectedly. Preparation must take place now, for there will be no escape from it. Have no fear, but put on faith. Be sober. Keep awake. Be watchful. Be prepared. You have been destined not for wrath, but for salvation. So work out your salvation. Repent and believe. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. You are of great value. The coming judge is the one who loved you so that he laid down his life that you might have life abundant and eternal. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as indeed you are doing. St. Giles Church is pleased to announce a climate-controlled environment designed for your comfort in mind. There are speakers above, lighting about, cushions beneath. Should you be accompanied by small children today... Remember to get your own heart and mind in order first and then you will be in a better position to advise and assist them. Please note the locations of the emergency exits and familiarize yourself with them. Should the Lord's coming be delayed beyond the benediction, there are two exits in the forward section of the sanctuary and three in the aft. We at St. Giles thank you for worshiping with us today. Now, prepare for departure.